You're listening to the ESD 11 Mobile Healthcare Podcast with your host, Doug Hooten. So welcome to ESD 11 Podcast. Today we're going to be talking about EMS billing, and I have some great folks with me. I have Carol Thompson, who is our uh, EMS billing manager. I'll let her talk a little bit about herself. I have Sherry Willingham, who I've known for a pretty good while, and she's our EMS uh, billing supervisor. And I have Dave Snavely, who, like me, has been in the business for a while, just short of fossil status, I suspect. And um, he is our chief financial officer. So today we're going to talk about billing and, and all that goes into uh, billing for, for everyone out there. So Carol, why don't you just talk a little second for about who you are, where you're from, what your experience is, um, and then we'll do that with Sherry and Dave. Okay, my name is Carol Thompson, and I come to you with about 30 years in um, medical billing and collections. I grew up in Newton, Texas. Where is well, Newton, Texas? That's uh, in East Texas, right? That's East Texas, Southeast Texas. Um, I have a, two daughters, and I am happy to be here and be a part of ESD 11. Perfect. Sherry? Hi, I'm Sherry Willingham. I've been in EMS for about 15 years. I worked with Doug um, previously. I am a new resident to the spring area. I moved from Fort Worth. I have two kids and a hubby, and we are currently in the process of getting everything moved. And I am you know, happy that you actually uh, saw fit to come work with me again, so this is great. Thanks. Dave Stabler. Hi. The man, the myth, the legend. <laughs> I hope not, because I'm still alive. My name's Dave Snavely. I'm the CFO. I have... Uh, Varied history in both uh, EMS operations and finance. Still maintain my Texas paramedic certification. Is that like number one? <laughs> in South Dakota, it was number eight, which isn't saying much. Grew up in South Dakota and lived uh, various states around the country in my career. Started out in life in accounting and banking and then had a wild hair and decided to join the EMS uh, crews and operations and worked in the field in the air and the ground and in operations and management before transitioning back over to the financial side. Thanks, Dave. And, um, you know, just, uh, just so you have a feel, I mean, we have a very experienced uh, leadership group here that's overseeing our billing operations. And so I felt like this was a great topic to uh, spend a little bit of time in talking with our staff and uh, the community at large that will listen to this podcast because it is such an integral part of uh, what happens here. And so part of the reason we want to have this podcast is to tell our uh, staff a little bit about what we're doing, why we're doing it, and how, how they play such an important role in the overall success of of billing of a ticket. And, you know, that's sort of the end result of after we have gotten a call, we talked through that on one of the podcasts and responding to the call. We talked about that on a a podcast and then taking care of people and getting them to the hospital. And then after all of that is done, then have the opportunity to offset our costs with an opportunity to bill for our services and collect some dollars from that. And 
And that becomes important for a lot of different reasons. One, it affects how much tax dollars that we have to collect every year from people based on the total number of uh, revenue that we're going to need for the system, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But more so than that, the whole billing process is an opportunity for us to maximize not only our revenue, but to minimize the amount of financial exposure that someone else might have if we do our job really well and collect from uh, third parties instead of having to collect from clients. So so a lot goes into this, and um, so I think we'll just start by having a very sort of high-level conversation, and I think I'll start with you, Dave. If you could just tell us a little bit about the revenue cycle and why that's overall important to our budget. Sure, happy to. Thanks, Doug. So for all of us, uh, we already know that the folks in the field do a great job of medical care, and that's meeting the patient's needs right at the time of, of their serious event that you're responding to. Following up to that, as Doug was talking, we need to find a way to uh, help them pay for that, and here's another opportunity for us to shine. Uh, the billing office folks, uh, led by Carol and by Sherry, have a lot of experience doing this, but they really need the help of the field folks to get good information up front so they can follow through on that and place that claim with the appropriate payer. We tend to focus a lot on Medicare and Medicaid because they represent, in most cases, over half of our payers out there, and so they kind of set the standard for what everybody does, and you'll hear us talk about that in detail. So we're really asking for you to collect some very good information up front. There's a variety of patient demographics that we look for. And once we obtain that and verify who can and will hopefully pay for that service, we send that bill out the door. Um, sometimes that is accepted as sent. Sometimes the payer requests additional development, additional information, and we work to gather all that and submit that until they consider the claim to be eligible for payment, which then we hope they do. Um, once they have paid that bill, sometimes there's a remainder of responsibility for the patient, sometimes not. Depends on the carrier and depends on the type of plan that the patient has. Uh, we will continue to effort to collect those additional dollars and close the claim out as paid. Yeah, that's a very good description of the revenue cycle. Some of the issues that you hear out in the, the public about some of this is surprise billing. I always am sort of surprised by that terminology because it's really never a surprise bill. There, there is an expectation that we will bill for all the services uh, that we provide here in the district. That's, that's very uh, transparent. Our rates are posted on our website that are approved by our board. So there isn't anything surprising about the bill. What might be surprising is how that bill gets paid by the insurance company. So I think it's more of a surprise non-payment than it is uh, about a surprise bill. There's no surprise about the bill. It's just how that bill gets paid and who pays for that and what remainder of that turns out to be a patient requirement. So could you just real quickly, maybe just talking through the revenue cycle piece of that, sort of how that part of it might work out. Maybe talk about in-network versus out-of-network a little bit. And so uh, I'll start with you, Dave, but maybe um, Sherry and Carol, you might want to chime in on this as well. 
Okay, very good. Uh, with Medicare and Medicaid, uh, they do not have an in-network or out-of-network component that's reserved for commercial payers. Uh, but continuing on with Medicare and Medicaid, then um, they have a benefit. It's defined what it will be. Um, it's always less than what our normal charges are, and, and all agencies experience that. Uh, once a proper claim is submitted, they're going to process that for payment. And again, not a surprise, uh, most Medicare beneficiaries are very well aware of the payment terms that Medicare offers. For instance, there may be a deductible up front during the calendar year, and there may be a co-payment that's required uh, based on a percentage of what Medicare allows for that payment. Medicaid patients, on the other hand, have no copayment. The amount that they provide is uh, the complete payment that will be offered, and there is no balance billing uh, in that situation. Or either situation for Medicare or Medicaid. So, so they have a fee schedule. They pay from that fee schedule, and it doesn't matter how much you charge. That's the only amount of money you can do, and then there is a split for that. But, Carol, you could talk a little bit on the commercial side on how that sort of differs and why it gets more complex when we try to build commercial insurance. The commercial payers can sometimes adjudicate the claim in network or out of network, but because we're an emergency service, those claims should be processed as in network, and uh, we are willing and um, happy to help you and assist in appealing that claim if necessary. Aside from that, the commercial payer also has uh, a payment method in mind, and it's there's a lot of different options out there based on the type of plan, either you or your insurer or your, I'm sorry, your employer or the government, perhaps, if you went to the marketplace to purchase a policy, may decide an ambulance trip is worth. And as they apply those benefits, then there is often uh, some sort of patient responsibility. And our job is to do our very best to obtain as much of a payment as we can from the commercial payer and then help you readily identify any remaining responsibility you may have. And so that's how it gets complicated, right? So you have deductibles uh, that you have to meet, and that's, that's established by your policy. Um, but there's this arbitrary number that sometimes insurance companies pick to pay that uh, nobody's really sure where that formulary comes from. Could pay half, they could pay all, it just, it varies. And then the difference between all of that results in a payment that the patient has remaining that they have to pay. And that's that's really what everybody's talking about when they say surprise bill. It's not really a surprise bill, It's, it's a surprise amount of money that is not being paid by either commercial insurance, and truly commercial insurance, or uninsured or underinsured, those people with no insurance or underinsured, who get a full bill for that sort of service. So that's just a very high-level sort of complicated view of sort of ambulance billing and why it gets sort of complicated. And I want to make sure that we talk a little bit about this, you know, balance billing sort of issues and um, surprise bills. There really should be no surprise. Every ambulance transport that we do will get a bill. And um, those rates for that bill are on our website. There should be no surprise that goes along with that. So that said, let's uh, let's talk a little bit to the employees and the crew. And I said earlier that they're an integral part of this. And so Sherry, I'd like to sort of have you weigh in on what do you see, what are, the, what are the important pieces that we expect to get from the crew that would help billing do their job better? And then a little bit of a discussion after that about what do you see 
that if they could do better would be helpful? Sure. I think the most important thing is, is that we consider that patient not only through the transport, but also the process of helping them take care of their bill. Part of that is being able to get the information that we need to obtain the correct insurance information that we file. We want to be able to work with the patient and, if needed, with the facilities to get the information that we need. So we need a good phone number for the patient, the correct spelling of the patient's name, and their social, if possible. If you, if we could get their actual insurance information, the name of their insurance, that would be helpful. What would be very helpful for us is to get a picture of their insurance card and their driver's license. And we can do that with the laptops or tablets that have been provided front and back if possible. And that helps us immensely to, to go ahead and, and get that information and be able to get the correct information to file their claim in a timely manner. And the patient signature is so important um, to the overall filing of these claims and collection of these claims. Can you talk just a little bit about that? Yes. A patient signature is very important. Um, if the patient is capable of signing, there are a few different options that you have paragraph-wise to choose for a patient signature. You've got your HIPAA release, and you've also got your release for billing. If we don't have the release for billing, we are not able to bill Medicare at all. We will have to basically contact that patient and try and obtain a signature from them to be able to bill Medicare for them. If they have a commercial plan and they don't sign, and we file that claim without the patient signature, then usually what happens is that that insurance company will send our payment to the patient. And so we really want to try and uh, mitigate that by getting all of the correct signatures at the time that we have contact with that patient. And so there are a number of choices, right, when they, uh, to your point, if they're conscious and can sign, then we need to get them to sign. But what if they have limitations to their ability to sign or understand? What are some of the things that they could do to remedy that? Okay, because that does happen where they're not capable of signing for whatever reason. And in those cases, what we need is um, the receiving facility's signature. And with that, we need the receiving facility. Usually it's the nurse or whoever's there helping you get that patient into the ER. And we would need the first initial and the last name of that person along with their credentials, usually an RN or something along those lines. If the patient is with, say, a parent or a spouse at the time that they're unable to sign, we can also use them as a representative of the patient. And we just need um, for them to sign, and we need the typed-out spelling of their name. It's also interesting to note that the payers, insurance companies and Medicare, are fairly sophisticated in comparing all the documentation. So if the patient can sign at the emergency room, it's important that we're able to obtain that same type of documentation in the field. Even though the patient's condition can change from time to time, they'll note that difference. And then we're in the process, as Sherry was talking about earlier, collecting twice, once from the payer and then again from the patient. Right. And so you, you get these puts sort of uh, things on um, a lot of them where it's patient unable to sign. And so they abbreviate that P-U-T-S. And if they do that, then they really should give you a reason why, right? It's not just that they're not able to sign, but why they're unable to sign. It's very, very important so that can be clarified as we submit the report for payment. So all these things, um, if the um, employees can get gather this documentation, certainly helps us 
get a clean submission of a claim and therefore helps get the claim processed. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay. And so once we get all this information, uh, there, there are some timelines that I think that we ought to at least make people aware of and so that we can have sort of timely filings. So, so it's important to get this stuff in as quickly as possible. So you can't wait for months on end to get information in order to file these claims. So uh, Carol, could you just sort of talk, walk us through a little bit of these timelines and why they're important? Yes, they are important. Most insurances allow 90 to 95 days to bill your insurance company. If you don't get that claim in ti- in, to them in time and provide the signatures and medical records sometimes that they need, they'll deny that claim as past timely filing, which means we don't get paid and we look to patient for that payment. I think it's also important to note that the patient situation can change over time and you're capturing their contact information at the time of the call and we need a good complete set to be able to contact them and send that bill out as soon as possible. If we're waiting several months down the line, that contact information may no longer be valid. So we'd like all that to occur as quickly as possible. So keeping it fresh and getting it at time of service is very, very important. And so of course, all this stuff we've been talking about is um, we make a call and then we transport a patient to a hospital. So what happens um, when we do not transport patients to the hospital? So you show up on scene and there are patient refusals. Are we charging people for those services? So I don't know who might want to answer that. Maybe uh, Sherry, you might want to take that on. But are we, um, are we actually going to bill people for just responding? There are some situations where we will bill the patient if the patient refuses to be transported. And that's usually when we have provided some kind of care on scene. A good example of that is if we do a, an ECG or an EKG on the patient, we provide some kind of medication on, at, at the scene. If we might apply an, I, an, an IV at the scene, there would be a charge. Um, A good example of this is if someone is diabetic and their blood glucose level is low, then we might come in and help them by providing medications and and other things. And for those things, there will be a charge. Right. So so it varies based on the usage of supplies, really. So bandages, supplies, medications, technology that might need to apply to get to a safe place where people could safely... Um, have information enough to refuse care. So let's talk a little bit about motor vehicle collisions. So there's some some opportunities here to bill, you know, the insurance, their health insurance, or to bill their automobile insurance. So how does that play into a motor vehicle collision? We would like to bill your the motor vehicle insurance that's responsible for that bill, and that's initially who we send the claim out to. Sometimes uh, if a patient does not have that information and they have private insurance, we're happy to bill that insurance. Many insurances will not process that claim, and they want the, your auto insurance information to pay that claim. There's a couple of reasons, too, why being very timely with motor vehicle claims is important. Uh, number one is the policy or the coverage limits on your automobile policy is generally less than your health insurance provides. So sometimes various providers, if that patient's transported and needs significant care, are competing for a small amount of dollars. We would like to be early in that list. The second reason for that is that the carrier is also, when they pay, usually very good. 
And so if we can get payment from the auto insurance company, generally that bill is fully satisfied, whereas if you do have to go to the private insurance route, a copayment may be required. So that's another reason why we really want to get that information up front and be successful in obtaining that payment. But part of the problem that comes up with the motor vehicle collisions are the dreaded attorney gets involved and then that gets tied up with attorneys for uh, long periods of time, which then forces us to sort of revert to the health insurance. Do you find that to be true? Right. That, that, that can happen and does happen. For most people that carry their own insurance as required by law, uh, your personal policy will pay first on that claim and then the term is subrogate, but go to the other parties if they are at fault, insurance company to recover their money. I had personal experience with this in January of this year and had to follow that very process. Uh, so all of that's very true. The attorneys can really slow it down, use the patient, uh, are probably better served to file with your own insurance if you have and that's available and let them do the rest of the work for you. I think everybody comes out uh, as best they can following that process. That way you don't miss any of these timely filing issues right. that we have. So all, all this stuff is very, very complicated and it's very helpful to help patients resolve their financial obligations to us. So that gets us down to talk a little bit about payments and how we receive those payments. And we, we receive those in a lot of different manners. So maybe you guys can just talk about how we receive payments from all the different types of payers that we might get them from? We will have an online portal where if you'd like to, you can go online and you can pay with credit cards. We will also be able to work with you. Should you have a balance that you're having trouble with, you can always give us a call and we can help out in any which way we can, whether that's working with your insurance to try and get them to pay something additional or working with you on a monthly payment plan. And in addition to that, for those who are truly low income and uh, need some form of charity care, uh, we do have a published policy on that and a method upon which we will review that particular uh, request for consideration in adjudicating that claim. So all those options exist. Hopefully your insurance company or Medicare Medicaid pays that bill for you or the majority of it. If there are additional payments, as Sherry said, that are necessary, we have a variety of ways to both help you make that payment online, directly, through the mail, uh, as well as setting up installments that are recurring even for your convenience. Yes, and so uh, this discussion revolves around what happens after we receive a payment from whatever the source is, Medicare, Medicaid, commercial insurance. And so so if there's a balance left, then uh, then clearly we have a lot of different methods by which we can work with you to, to get those payments resolved. Um, and the charity care uh, piece that Dave was referring to follows the same very similar guidelines that you'd find at a hospital for that sort of service as well. So our intent is to make sure that we're working with the community to resolve these issues. It is important um, to all of us here that uh, you know we try to maximize the dollars that are available to us from all of the different payers, payer sources so that we can efficiently use the taxpayer dollars to run the service because it's a combination of those dollars which come from commercial payers and other payers of the system and tax dollars that do uh, fund the system that we have built here in ESD 11. 
So this is a great conversation about the billing cycle. Um, this is all done internally here at ESD 11. Uh, we have some dedicated um, employees who are working here to ensure that the district maximizes its ability to collect dollars from third-party payers as well as from the community at large so that we can minimize the amount of tax dollars that go into the system. So I, I can't thank uh, Carol Thompson, Sherry Willingham, and Dave Snavely enough for taking some time out of their busy um, schedules to talk to us a little bit about billing and the billing process and how important it is to our community. I want to thank them for uh, the, the great work that they do. And um, as always, if anybody has any questions, please feel free to uh, email us here at, I think there is a email address in there, Dave, that they can send Thanks. So there are three different ways for the patient to make contact with us or their uh, guardian significant other. There is a specific email address that is patient accounts, all one word, patient accounts at esd11.com. We have an 800 number for those out of the area or your convenience. That is 844-423-7311. That's 844 844- Four two three seven three one one, and then there's a local number direct to the patient accounts group, and that is three four six two two six eight eight six zero. Again, three four six two two six eight eight six zero. All right. So, again, it's been a great conversation. Thanks to everyone for their participation, and uh, we look forward to. Um, Another podcast uh, coming to you soon. We are going to have a town hall meeting. It's going to be next week. I don't remember the date, though. Is it on? It's next week, Wednesday, September 29th. starts at 4.30 p.m. There you go. So um, thanks, everybody, and have a great afternoon. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the ESD 11 Mobile Healthcare Podcast. To learn more, visit our website at www.esd11.com. Are you interested in a career with ESD11 Mobile Healthcare? Send an email to careers at esd11.com.